rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One is offered as a podcast at rte.ie forward slash drama on one and of course here on RTE Radio One on Sunday nights. And for the month of October, we're hosting a season of Samuel Beckett's writings, including a piece of monologue, All That Fall, The Old Tune and tonight's featured work, What? Adapted and performed by Barry McGovern, directed by Tom Creed. Each work is introduced by Jerry Jukes, whose stage adaptation with Barry McGovern of Beckett's post-war trilogy of novels as I'll Go On has played all around the world. Tonight, Jerry focuses on What by Samuel Beckett, first published as a novel in 1953. This week, we will have What, adapted and performed by Barry McGovern and directed by Tom Creed. Watt arrives at this house and he knocks on the whole door and it's locked. The place seems to be in darkness. Then he goes around to the back. The place seems to be in darkness. Then he goes back to the front and he tries again. And then for some reason he goes to the back and it's open. And he walks into a kitchen with a a lamp, an oil lamp in the kitchen. And he takes off his hat. He notices that there's a fire in the range, in the grate of the range, and then he starts playing, obscuring the light of the lamp, and as he obscures the light of the lamp, the glow from the range becomes more and more visible, so he plays with obscuring and revealing the glow from the range, and eventually he's interrupted at this by the arrival of a man. And this is the man that he is going to replace in the service of a Mr. Nutt. Mr. Knott lives on the first floor and he doesn't descend, rarely descends, and he rarely has in any conversation with his staff, so-called. So while nothing happens in the book, there is lots going on, but it's all at the linguistic language level. What, at some point, he becomes, he has no sucker in semantics and things begin to lose their connection to the words we use to name them. And so there's a long passage about what having difficulty with a pot. The pot is quite essential because Mr. Knott's diet consists of two meals a day. So that's 14 per week. So they are all produced out of the one pot with set ingredients and it's eaten cold twice a day. And if it's not eaten... It's left for a dog, and that's a whole other dimension to the book. But what begins to lose contact with the, the, that does the word pot attach to the object pot? And he tries other words. So we have, we have what, we have pot, we have not. There's all kinds of rhyming going on. And of course, rhyming happens not just with sounds, but it happens with incidents in this book. So, it's a ballet. No, a ballet would be far too dignified a word for it. It's a, it's a dance, and uh, it's a very engaging dance. What is challenging? But it is it, challenging because it relies upon your susceptibility to the manipulation of language in all kinds of ways to compel your interest. For example, near the beginning, there's a a catalogue of people who might be interested in something. 
and it goes, and their fathers' fathers, and their mothers' mothers, and their fathers' mothers' fathers, and their mothers' fathers' mothers. And it goes on and just, it builds until you're lost in these generations. What do you get at it? The payoff is that you're, you have, your attention has been compelled to something that is inherently absurd, but at the same time is deeply engaging and funny. And you get sensitised, as it were, to the kinds of things that you expect a book to give you. Go ahead plot, for example. Beckett began his career as a writer in Paris in 1929 when he was asked to write a critical essay on what Joyce was producing at the time, which was Work in Progress, which became Finnegan's Wake. And during the course of that essay, uh, Beckett stands back from so-called realist fiction and he calls those who produce it uh, chartered recountants. Okay, now that doesn't sound as if he's interested in realism. I mean, there's a moment in Murphy, for example, does a the landlady is called Miss Carriage, but um, it says at some point, Miss Carriage knocks on the door of the room in which Murphy and Celia are, and she knocks on the door some time after she has arrived in the room. And not even the presence in her hand of a nice cup of tea prevents her from being able to do this. It was thought that she had a collaborator. And of course she has. The narrator of the book. Okay, somebody who's telling you the story is making it possible for people to do impossible things. So, once you are attuned to the strategies of Beckett's writing and his extraordinary engagement with the English language and subsequently with the French language, can you begin to get the rewards that are so copiously available in the texts? Jerry Dukes there and Jerry will be back next week to introduce Beckett's radio play All That Fall. Jerry was speaking to Kevin Brew and Tommy O'Sullivan was on sound. Barry McGovern is considered one of the world's greatest Beckett interpreters, having given hundreds of performances of his works over the course of 50 years. It's a reputation he established with the one-man show I'll Go On, as well as a star turn as Vladimir in Waiting for Godot. His acclaimed stage version of Watt premiered at the Gate Theatre in 2010 and recently he recorded the piece for radio. This is Watt by Samuel Beckett. Adapted and performed by Barry McGovern and directed by Tom Creed. The only way one can speak of nothing is to speak of it as though it were something. Just as the only way one can speak of God is to speak of him as though he were a man, which, to be sure, he was, in a sense, for a time. And as the only way one can speak of man is to speak of him as though he were a termite. A tram stopped. It remained stationary for some little time and they heard the voice of the conductor raised in anger. Then it moved on, disclosing on the pavement, motionless, a solitary figure, lit less and less by the receding lights until it was scarcely to be distinguished from the dim wall behind it. Mrs Nixon was not sure whether it was a man or a woman. Mr Hackett was not sure that it was not a parcel 
A carpet, for example, or a roll of tarpaulin wrapped up in dark paper and tied about the middle with a cord. Mr. Nixon rose without a word and rapidly crossed the street. Mrs. Nixon and Mr. Hackett could see his eager gestures, for his coat was light in colour, and hear his voice raised in remonstrance. But what moved no more as far as they could see than if he had been of stone. And if he spoke, he spoke so low that they did not hear him. Watt wore a greatcoat, still green here and there, and on his head a block hat of a pepper colour. This excellent hat had belonged to his grandfather, who had picked it up on a race course from off the ground where it lay and carried it home. Then mustard, now it was pepper in colour. Watt wore on his feet a boot, brown in colour, and a shoe, happily of a brownish colour also. This boot Watt had bought for eightpence from a one-legged man, who having lost his leg, and a fortiori his foot, in an accident, was happy to realise on his discharge from hospital, for such a sum, his unique remaining marketable asset. He little suspected that he owed this good fortune to Watts having found, some days before on the seashore, the shoe, stiff with brine, but otherwise shipshape. Mr Nixon rejoined them. I recognised him at once, he said. For the past seven years he owes me five shillings. He is setting out on a journey. He is on his way now to the station. He's a little strange at times, but he's an experienced traveller. He has no fixed address that I know of, but a milder, more inoffensive creature does not exist. He would literally turn the other cheek, I honestly believe, if he had the energy. You haven't told us his name, said Mr. Hackett. What? said Mr. Nixon. I say you haven't told us his name, said Mr. Hackett. What? said Mr. Nixon. At the station, Watt bumped into a porter, wheeling a milk can. Watt fell, and his hat and bags were scattered. The porter did not fall, but he let go his can, which fell back with a thump on its tilted rim, rocked rattling on its base, and finally came to a stand. This was a happy chance, for had it fallen on its side, full as it perhaps was of milk, then who knows, the milk might have run out all over the platform and even on the rails beneath the train and been lost. Watt picked himself up, little the worse for his fall, as usual. The devil raise a hump on you, said the porter. He was a handsome, if dirty fellow. It is so difficult for railway porters to keep sweet and clean with the work they have to do. Can't you look where you're going, he said. Watt did not cry out on this extravagant suggestion. Let fall, it is only fair to say, in the heat of anger. He stooped to pick up his hat and bags, but straightened himself up without having done so. He did not feel at liberty to see to this matter until the porter had finished abusing him. Mute on top of blind, said the porter. Watt smiled and, clasping his hands, raised them to his breastbone and held them there. Watt had watched people smile and thought he understood how it was done. And it was true that Watt's smile when he smiled, resembled more a smile than a sneer, for example, or a yawn, but there was something wanting to what smile. Some little thing was lacking. And people who saw it for the first time, and most people who saw it, saw it for the first time, were sometimes in doubt as to what expression exactly was intended. 
To many, it seemed a simple sucking of the teeth. Watt used this smile sparingly. Watt's smile was further peculiar in this, that it seldom came singly, but was followed after a short time by another, less pronounced, it is true. In this, it resembled the fart. Watt picked up his hat and bags and got into the train. He did not choose a compartment. It happened to be empty. Watt sat with his back to the engine, which now, having got up steam, drew the long line of carriages out of the station. Already Watt preferred to have his back to his destination. Now the fields flew by, the hedges and the ditches ghastly in the train's light, or appeared to do so, for in reality it was the train that moved across a land forever still. But Watt heard nothing, because of voices singing, crying, stating, murmuring, things unintelligible in his ear. Now these voices, sometimes they sang only, and sometimes they cried only, and sometimes they stated only, and sometimes they murmured only. And sometimes they sang and cried and stated and murmured all together at the same time, as now, to mention only these four kinds of voices, for there were others. And sometimes what understood all. And sometimes he understood much. And sometimes he understood little. And sometimes he understood nothing, as now. The race course now appearing with its beautiful white railing in the fleeing lights warned Watt that he was drawing near and that when the train stopped next, then he must leave it. So he settled his bags under his hands and held himself in readiness, in readiness to leave the train the moment it came to a standstill. For Watt had once been carried past this station and on to the next through his not having prepared himself in time to get down when the train stopped. For this was a line so little frequented, especially at this hour, when the driver, the stoker, the guard and the station staffs all along the line were annihilating towards their wives after the long hours of continence, that the train would hardly draw up when it would be off again like a bouncing ball. The moon was now up. It was not far up, but it was up. It was of an unpleasant yellow colour. Long past the full, it was waning, waning. Watt's way of advancing due east, for example, was to turn his bust as far as possible towards the north, and at the same time to fling out his right leg as far as possible towards the south, and then to turn his bust as far as possible towards the south, and at the same time to fling out his left leg as far as possible towards the north and then again to turn his bust as far as possible towards the north and to fling out his right leg as far as possible towards the south, and then again to turn his bust as far as possible towards the south and to fling out his left leg as far as possible towards the north, and so on, over and over again, many, many times, until he reached his destination and could sit down. So standing first on one leg and then on the other, he moved forward a headlong tardigrade in a straight line. The knees on these occasions did not bend. They could have, but they did not. Lady McCann, coming up behind, thought she had never on the public road seen motions so extraordinary, and few women had a more extensive experience of the public road than Lady McCann. That they were not due to alcohol appeared from their regularity and dogged air. Watts 
was a funambulistic stagger. But he had not continued very far when, feeling weak, he left the crown of the road and sat down on the path, which was high and edged with thick, neglected grass. He knew as he did so that it would not be easy to get up again, as he must, and move on again, as he must. But the feeling of weakness, which he had been expecting for some time, was such that he yielded to it and settled himself on the edge of the path, with his hat pushed back and his bags beside him and his knees drawn up and his arms on his knees and his head on his arms. But this was a position that Watt, after a short time, found himself unable to sustain. And one of the reasons for that was perhaps this, that he felt the moon pouring its now whitening rays upon him as though he were not there. For if there were two things that Watt disliked, one was the moon and the other was the sun. So settling his hat firmly on his head and reaching forward for his bags, he rolled himself over into the ditch and lay there on his face, half buried in the wild long grass, the foxgloves, the hyssop, the pretty nettles, the high pouting hemlock and other ditch weeds and flowers. And it was to him lying thus that there came with great distinctness from afar from without. Yes, really, it seemed, from without. The voices, indifferent in quality, of a mixed choir. This verse was followed by a second. Of these two verses, Watt thought he preferred the former. Bun is such a sad word, is it not? And man is not much better, is it? But by this time, Watt was tired of the ditch, which he'd been thinking of leaving when the voices detained him. So he crawled out of the ditch, not forgetting his bags, and resumed his journey, with less difficulty than he had feared, at the point where it had been interrupted by the feeling of weakness. This feeling of weakness Watt had left, together with his evening meal of goat's milk and insufficiently cooked cod, in the ditch. 
and it was with confidence that he now advanced in the middle of the road, with confidence and with awe also, for the chimneys of Mr. Knott's house were visible at last in the light of the moon. The house was in darkness. Finding the front door locked, Watt went to the back door. He could not very well ring or knock, for the house was in darkness. Finding the back door locked also, Watt returned to the front door. Finding the front door locked still, Watt returned to the back door. Finding the back door now open, oh, not open wide, but on the latch, as the saying is, Watt was able to enter the house. Watt was surprised to find the back door so lately locked, now open. Watt never knew how he got into Mr. Knott's house. He knew that he got in by the back door, but he was never to know, never, never to know how the back door came to be opened. And if the back door had never opened but remained shut, then who knows? Watt had never got into Mr. Knott's house at all, but turned away and returned to the station and caught the first train back to town. Unless he had got in through a window. No sooner had Watt crossed Mr. Knott's threshold than he saw that the house was not in such darkness as he had at first supposed, for a light was burning in the kitchen. When Watt reached this light, he sat down beside it, on a chair. Watt saw in the grate of the range the ashes grey, but they turned pale red when he covered the lamp with his hat. The range was almost out, but not quite. A handful of dry chips and the flames would spring, merry in appearance, up the chimney with an organ note. So what busied himself a little while, covering the lamp less and less, more and more with his hat, watching the ashes grayen, redden, grayen, redden in the grate of the range. What was so busy doing this, moving his hat to and fro behind him, that he neither saw nor heard the door open and a gentleman come in. He was dressed for the road and carried a stick, but no hat was on his head, nor any bag in his hand. Before leaving, he made the following short statement. Haw! Oh, how it all comes back to me, to be sure. That look, that weary watchful vacancy. The man arrives, the dark ways all behind, all within, the long dark ways, in his head, in his side, in his hands and feet, and he sits in the red gloom, picking his nose, waiting for the dawn to break. All the old ways led to this, all the old windings, the wild country roads where your dead walk beside you, on the dark shingle, the turning for the last time again to the lights of the little town, the appointments kept and the appointments broken, all led to this, to this gloaming where a middle-aged man sits masturbating his snout, waiting for the first dawn to break. Having oscillated all his life between the torments of a superficial loitering and the horrors of disinterested endeavour, he finds himself at last in a situation where to do nothing exclusively would be an act of the highest value and significance. And what happens? For the first time, since in anguish and disgust he relieved his mother of her milk, definite tasks of unquestionable utility are assigned to him. Is not that charming? But his regret, 
His indignation are of short duration, disappearing as a rule at the end of the third or fourth month. Personally, of course, I regret everything. Not a word, not a deed, not a thought, not a need, not a grief, not a joy, not a girl, not a boy, not a doubt, not a trust, not a scorn, not a lust, not a hope, not a fear, not a smile, not a tear, not a name, not a face, no time, no place that I do not regret exceedingly. An ordure from beginning to end. And yet, when I sat for fellowship, but for the boil on my bottom, the rest an ordure. The Tuesday scowls, the Wednesday growls, the Thursday curses, the Friday howls, the Saturday snores, the Sunday yawns, the Monday mourns, the Monday mourns. The whacks, the moans, the cracks, the groans, the welts, the squeaks, the belts, the shrieks, the pricks, the prayers, the kicks, the tears, the scalps and the yelps. And the poor old, lousy old earth. My earth and my father's and my mother's and my father's fathers, and my mother's mothers, and my father's mothers, and my mother's fathers, and my father's mother's fathers, and my mother's father's mothers, and my father's mother's mothers, and my mother's father's fathers, and my father's father's mothers, and my mother's mother's fathers, and my father's father's fathers, and my mother's mother's mothers, and other people's fathers and mothers, and excrement, the crocuses, and the larch turning green every year a week before the others, and the pastures red with uneaten sheep's placentas, and the long summer days and the new-mown hay, and the wood pigeon in the morning and the cuckoo in the afternoon and the corncrake in the evening, and the wasps in the jam and the smell of the gorse and the look of the gorse, and the apples falling and the children walking in the dead leaves and the larch turning brown a week before the others and the chestnuts falling and the howling winds and the sea breaking over the pier and the first fires and the hooves on the road and the consumptive postman whistling the roses are blooming in Picardy and the standard oil lamp and of course the snow and to be sure the sleet and bless your heart the slush and every fourth year the February debacle and the endless April showers and the crocuses and then the whole bloody business starting all over again. A turd. And if I could begin it all over again, knowing what I know now, the result would be the same. And if I could begin again a second time, knowing what I would know then, the result would be the same. And if I could begin it all over again a hundred times, knowing each time a little more than the time before, the result would always be the same, and the hundredth life as the first, and the hundred lives as one. A cat's flux. But at this rate we shall be here all night. It was summer when I landed here. There were three men in the house. The master, whom, as you well know, we call Mr. Knott, a senior retainer named Vincent, I believe, and a junior, only in the sense that he was a more recent acquisition, named, if I am not mistaken, Walter. The first is here in his bed, or at least in his room, but the second, I mean Vincent, is not here anymore. And the reason for that is this, that when I came in, he went out. But the third, I mean Walter, 
is not here anymore either, and the reason for that is this, that when Erskine came in, he went out, just as Vincent went out when I came in. And I, I mean Arsène, am not here anymore either, and the reason for that is this, that when you came in, I went out, just as when I came in, Vincent went out, and as Walter went out when Erskine came in. But Erskine, I mean the second last to come and the next to go, Erskine is here still, sleeping, and little dreaming what the new day holds in store. I mean promotion, and a new face, and the end in sight. But another evening shall come, and then another night fall, and another man come, and what go, what who is now come. For the coming is in the shadow of the going, and the going is in the shadow of the coming. That is the annoying part about it. And yet, there is one who neither comes nor goes. I refer, I need hardly say, to my late employer, but seems to abide in his place, for the time being at any rate, like an oak, an elm, a beech, or an ash. To mention only the oak, the elm, the beech, and the ash, and we nest a little while in his branches. Yet come he did once, otherwise how would he be here? And go sooner or later, I suppose he must. Though you wouldn't think it to look at him. And I ask of you to think of me always with forgiveness, as you desire to be thought of with forgiveness. Though personally, of course, it is all the same to me whether I'm thought of with forgiveness or with rancor or not at all. Good night. What? did not know what to think. So turning towards the lamp, he drew it towards him and turned down the wick and blew down the chimney until it was quite extinguished. Mr. Knott was a good master, in a way. Watt had no direct dealings with Mr. Knott at this period. Not that Watt was ever to have any direct dealings with Mr. Knott, for he was not. But he thought at this period that the time would come when he would have direct dealings with Mr. Knott on the first floor. Yes, he thought that time would come for him, as he had thought it had ended for Arsène and for Erskine just begun. For the moment, all Watt's work was on the ground floor. Callers were few. Tradesmen called, of course, and beggars and hawkers. The postman, a charming man called Severn, a great dancer and lover of greyhounds, seldom called, but he did sometimes, always in the evening, with his light, eager step and his dog by his side, to deliver a bill or a begging letter. Mr. Knott saw nobody, heard from nobody, as far as Watt could see. But Watt was not so foolish as to draw any conclusion from this. On only one occasion during Watt's period of service on the ground floor was the threshold crossed by a stranger, by other feet, that is, than Mr. Knott's, or Erskine's, or Watt's, for all were strangers to Mr. Knott's establishment as far as Watt could see, with the exception of Mr. Knott himself and his personnel at any given moment. This fugitive penetration took place shortly after Watt's arrival. On his answering the door, as his habit was when there was a knock at the door, he found standing before it, or so he realised later, arm in arm, an old man and a middle-aged man. The latter said, 
We are the Gauls, father and son, and we are come, what is more, all the way from town to tune the piano. They were two, and they stood arm in arm in this way because the father was blind, like so many members of his profession. When he had led them to the music room and left them there, what wondered if he had done right? He felt he had done right, but was not sure. Should he not perhaps rather have sent them flying about their business? The music room was a large, bare, white room. The piano was in the window. The head and neck in plaster, very white, of Buxtehude was on the mantelpiece. Aravanistron hung on the wall from a nail like a plover. After a short time, Watt returned to the music room with a tray of refreshments. Not Mr. Gall Sr., but Mr. Gall Jr. was tuning the piano, to Watt's great surprise. Mr. Gall Sr. was standing in the middle of the room, perhaps listening. While Watt looked round for a place to set down his tray, Mr. Gall Jr. brought his work to a close. He reassembled the piano case, put back his tools in their bag, and stood up. The mice have returned, he said. The elder said nothing. Watt wondered if he had heard. Nine dampers remain, said the younger, and an equal number of hammers. Not corresponding, I hope, said the elder. In one case, said the younger. The elder had nothing to say to this. The strings are in flitters, said the younger. The elder had nothing to say to this either. The piano is doomed, in my opinion, said the younger. The piano tuner also, said the elder. The pianist also, said the younger. This was perhaps the principal incident of Watt's early days in Mr. Knott's house. In a sense, it resembled all the incidents of note proposed to Watt during his stay in Mr. Knott's house, and in a sense, not. It resembled them in the sense that it was not ended when it was past, but continued to unfold in Watt's head the complex connections of its lights and shadows, the passing from silence to sound and from sound to silence, the stillness before the movement and the stillness after, the quickenings and retardings, the approaches and the separations, all the shifting details of its march and ordinance, and gradually lost all meaning even the most literal. Thus, the scene in the music room with the two Gauls ceased very soon to signify for what a piano tuned, an obscure family and professional relation, an exchange of judgments more or less intelligible and so on, if indeed it had ever signified such things, and became a mere example of light commenting bodies and stillness motion and silence sound and comment, comment. So what did not know what had happened? He did not care to do him justice what had happened, but he felt the need to think that such and such a thing had happened then, the need to be able to say when the scene began to unroll its sequences, yes, I remember, that is what happened then. What distressed what in this incident of the Gauls, father and son, and in subsequent similar incidents, was not so much that he did not know what had happened, for he did not care what had happened, as that nothing had happened. That a thing that was nothing had happened, 
and that it continued to happen in his mind, he supposed, though he did not know exactly what that meant. Yes, Watt could not accept that nothing had happened with all the clarity and solidity of something. One wonders sometimes where Watt thought he was. In a culture park? One more word on this subject. Watt learned towards the end of his stay in Mr. Knott's house to accept that nothing had happened, that a nothing had happened, learned to bear it, and even in a shy way, to like it. But then it was too late. Watt now found himself in the midst of things which, if they consented to be named, did so, as it were, with reluctance. Looking at a pot, for example, or thinking of a pot, it was in vain that Watt said, pot, pot. For it was not a pot. The more he looked, the more he reflected, the more he felt sure of that, that it was not a pot at all. It resembled a pot. It was almost a pot. But it was not a pot of which one could say, pot, pot, and be comforted. It was in vain that it answered all the purposes and performed all the offices of a pot. It was not a pot. And it was just this hairbreadth departure from the nature of a true pot that so excruciated Watt. And Watt's need of semantic succor was at times so great that he was set to trying names on things, and on himself, almost as a woman, hats. Thus of the pseudopot, he would say, after reflection, it is a shield, or growing bolder, it is a raven, and so on. But the pot proved as little a shield or a raven or any of the other things that Watt called it, as a pot. Mr. Knott's meals gave very little trouble. On Saturday night, a sufficient quantity of food was prepared and cooked to carry Mr. Knott through the week. It fell to Watt to weigh, to measure and to count with the utmost exactness the ingredients that composed this dish, and to dress for the pot those that required dressing, and to mix them thoroughly together without loss, so that not one could be distinguished from another. This dish was served to Mr. Knott, cold in a bowl, at twelve o'clock noon sharp, and at seven p.m. exactly, all the year round. Watt's instructions were to give what Mr. Knott left of this dish, on the days that he did not eat at all, to the dog. Now there was no dog in the house, that is to say, no house dog to which this food could be given on the days that Mr. Knott did not require it, so that it was necessary that a dog from outside should call at the house at least once every day, on the off chance of its being given part or all of Mr. Knott's lunch or dinner or both to eat. By what means, then, were the dog and the food to be brought together on those days on which Mr. Knott, having left all or part of his food for the day, all or part of the food was available for the dog? Passing on, then, to the solution that seemed to have prevailed, Watt found it to be roughly this, that a suitable, large, needy, local family should be sought out, and, by a handsome, small, initial lump sum to be paid down, and by a liberal annual pension of £50 to be paid monthly, attached firmly, for good and all, in block, their children and their children's children, to Mr. Knott's service, 
in all matters touching this matter of the dog required to eat the food that Mr. Knott left. This little matter of the food and the dog, what pieced it together from the remarks let fall every now and then in the evening by the twin dwarfs, Art and Calm? For it was they who led the famished dog every evening to the door. They had done this since the age of twelve, that is to say, for the past quarter of a century, and they continued to do so all the time that Watt remained in Mr. Knott's house, or rather all the time that he remained on the ground floor. The name of this dog, when Watt entered Mr. Knott's service, was Kate. Kate was not at all a handsome dog. Even Watt, whom his fondness for rats prejudiced against dogs, had never seen a dog that he less liked the look of than Kate. It was a medium-sized dog of repulsive aspect. Kate died while Watt was still on the ground floor and was replaced by a dog called Sis. Sis was still alive when Watt left the ground floor for the first floor. What became of her later and of the dwarfs, he had no idea. For once on the first floor, Watt lost sight of the ground floor and interest in the ground floor. This was indeed a merciful coincidence, was it not, that at the moment of Watt's losing sight of the ground floor, he lost interest in it also. Mr. Graves, the gardener, came to the back door four times a day. In the morning, when he arrived to fetch the key of his shed, and at midday to fetch his pot of tea, and in the afternoon to fetch his bottle of stout and return the teapot, and in the evening to return the key and the bottle, what conceived from Mr. Graves a feeling little short of liking? In particular, Mr. Graves's way of speaking did not displease Watt. Mr. Graves pronounced his T.H. charmingly. Turd and fart, he said, for third and fourth. Watt liked these venerable Saxon words. And when Mr. Graves, drinking on the sunny step his afternoon stout, looked up with a twinkle in his old blue eye and said in mock deprecation, "'Tis only me turd or fart!" Then Watt felt he was perhaps prostituting himself to some purpose. But Mr. Graves' chief subject of conversation was his domestic troubles. He did not, it appeared, get on well with his wife and had not for some time past. Indeed, he did not get on with his wife at all. Mr. Graves seemed to have reached the age at which the failure to get on with one's wife is more generally a cause of satisfaction than of repining, but it greatly discouraged Mr. Graves. All his married life he had got on with his wife like a house on fire, but now for some time past he had been quite unable to do so. This was very distressing also to Mrs. Graves, that her husband could not get on with her any more, for there was nothing that Mrs. Graves loved better than to be got on well with. Mrs. Gorman, the fishwoman, called every Thursday, except when she was indisposed. Then she did not call, but stayed at home, in bed or in a comfortable chair, before the fire if the weather was cold and by the open window if the weather was warm, and if the weather was neither cold nor warm, by the closed window or before the empty hearth, so Thursday was the day that Watt preferred to all other days. Some prefer Sunday, others Monday, others Tuesday, others Wednesday, others Friday, others Saturday, but Watt preferred Thursday. 
because Mrs. Gorman called on Thursday. Then he would have her in the kitchen and open for her a bottle of stout and set her on his knee and wrap his right arm about her waist and lean his head upon her right breast, the left having unhappily been removed in the heat of a surgical operation, and in this position remain without stirring or stirring the least possible, forgetful of his troubles for as long as ten minutes or a quarter of an hour. And Mrs. Gorman, too, as with her left hand she stirred the grey-pink tufts, and with her right, at studied intervals, raised the bottle to her lips, was, in her own small way, at peace, too, for a time. From time to time, hoisting his weary head, from waist to neck his weary hold transferring, what would kiss, in a despairing manner, Mrs. Gorman, on or about the mouth, before crumpling back into his post-crucified position? And these kisses, when their first feverish force began to fail, that is to say, very shortly following their application, it was Mrs. Gorman's invariable habit to catch up, as it were, upon her own lips and return with tranquil civility, as one picks up a glove or newspaper let fall in some public place and restores it with a smile, if not a bow, to its rightful proprietor. So that each kiss was, in reality, two kisses. First Watt's kiss, Veliatry, anxious, and then Mrs. Gorman's, unctuous and urbane. But Mrs. Gorman did not always sit on what, for sometimes what sat on Mrs. Gorman. Some days Mrs. Gorman was on what all the time, other days what was on Mrs. Gorman throughout. Nor were there lacking days when Mrs. Gorman began by sitting on what and ended by having what sitting on her or when Watt began by sitting on Mrs. Gorman and ended by having Mrs. Gorman sitting on him. For Watt was apt to tire, before the time came for Mrs. Gorman to take her leave, of having Mrs. Gorman sitting on him, or of sitting himself on Mrs. Gorman. Then, if it was Mrs. Gorman on Watt, and not Watt on Mrs. Gorman, then he would urge her gently off his lap to her feet on the floor and he himself rise, until they who but a moment before had both been seated, she on him, he on the chair, now stood side by side on their feet, on the floor. And then together they would sink to rest, Watt and Mrs. Gorman, the latter on the chair, the former on the latter. But if it was not Mrs. Gorman on Watt, but Watt on Mrs. Gorman, then he would climb down from off her knees and raise her gently by the hand to her feet and take her place, bending his knees, on the chair and draw her down, spreading his thighs, among his lap. And so little could what support on certain days, on the one hand the pressure of Mrs. Gorman from above and on the other the thrust of Mrs. Gorman from below, that no fewer than two or three or four or five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten or eleven or even twelve or even thirteen changes of position were found necessary before the time came for Mrs. Gorman to take her leave, which, allowing one minute for the interversion, gives an average session of fifteen seconds and on the moderate basis of one kiss, lasting one minute, every minute and a half, a total for the day of one kiss only, one double kiss, begun in the first session and consummated in the last. For during the interversions they could not kiss, they were so busy interverting. 
Further than this, it will be learnt with regret. They never went. Watt was now tired of the ground floor. The ground floor had tired Watt out. What had he learnt? Nothing. What did he know of Mr. Knott? Nothing. Of his anxiety to improve, of his anxiety to understand, of his anxiety to get well, what remained? Nothing. But was not that something? He saw himself then so little, so poor. And now, littler, poorer. Was not that something? So sick, so alone. And now, sicker. A loner. Was not that something? But at last he awoke to find, on arising, on descending, Erskine gone, and, on descending a little further, a strange man in the kitchen. The strange man resembled Arsène and Erskine in build. He gave his name as Arthur. Arthur. What had little to say on the subject of the second or closing period of his stay in Mr. Knott's house? Of the nature of Mr. Knott himself, what remained in particular ignorance? For all that I know on the subject of Mr. Knott, and of all that touched Mr. Knott, and on the subject of what, and of all that touched what, came from what, and from what alone? And if I do not appear to know very much of the subject of Mr. Knott and of Watt, and on the subject of all that touched them, it is because Watt did not know a great deal on these subjects, or did not care to tell. Watt was never to know how long he spent in Mr. Knott's house, how long on the ground floor, how long on the first floor, how long altogether. All he could say was that it seemed a long time. One day they were all four in the garden, Mr. Knott, Watt, Arthur and Mr. Graves. It was a beautiful summer's day. Mr. Knott was moving slowly about, disappearing now behind a bush, emerging now from behind another. Watt was sitting on a mound. Arthur was standing on the lawn, talking to Mr. Graves. Mr. Graves was leaning on a fork but the great mass of the empty house was hard by, abound, and they were all in safety. Arthur said, Do not despair, Mr. Graves. Some day the clouds will roll away, and the sun, so long obnubilated, burst forth for you, Mr. Graves, at last. Not a kick in me, Mr. Arthur, said Mr. Graves. Oh, Mr. Graves, said Arthur, do not say that. When I says a kick said Mr. Graves. I means a... He made a gesture with his fork. Have you tried Bando, Mr. Graves, said Arthur. A capsule before and after meals in a little warm milk and again at night before turning in. I had tried everything and was thoroughly disgusted when a friend spoke to me of Bando. Her husband was never without it, you understand. Try it, she said, and come back in five or six years. 
I tried it, Mr. Graves, and it changed my whole outlook on life. From being a moody, listless, constipated man, covered with squames, shunned by my fellows, my breath fetid and my appetite depraved, for years I'd eaten nothing but high-fat rashers, I became, after four years of bando, vivacious, restless, a popular nudist, regular in my daily health, almost a father, and a lover of boiled potatoes. Bando, spelt as pronounced. Mr. Graves said he would give it a trial. The unfortunate thing about bando, said Arthur, is that it is no longer to be obtained in this unfortunate country. For the state, taking as usual the law into its own hands, and duly indifferent to the sufferings of thousands of men and tens of thousands of women all over the country, has seen fit to place an embargo on this admirable article from which joy could stream at a moderate cost into homes and other places of rendezvous now desolate. It cannot enter our ports nor cross our northern frontier if not in the form of a casual, hazardous and surreptitious dribble I mean piecemeal in ladies' underclothing, for example, or gentlemen's golf bags, or the hollow missile of a broad-minded priest, where on discovery it is immediately seized and confiscated by some gross customs official half-crazed with seminal intoxication and sold at ten and even fifteen times its advertised value to exhausted commercial travellers on their way home after an unprofitable circuit. As Watt told the beginning of his story, now he told the end. As Watt came, so he went in the night that covers all things with its cloak, especially when the weather is cloudy. In the kitchen, a strange man was sitting in the gloaming of the expiring range on a chair. My name is Mix, said the stranger. One moment I was out and the next I was in. So, the moment was come. Watt lifted the cork lid from his glass and drank. The milk was turning. He lit his cigar and puffed. It was an inferior cigar. When Watt had finished his milk and smoked his cigar until it burnt his lips, he left the kitchen. But in a short time he reappeared to mix, with in each hand a small bag, that is to say two small bags in all. These bags were three-quarters empty. In the avenue, somewhere between the house and the road, Watt recalled with regret that he had not taken leave of Mix as he should have done. The few simple words at parting that mean so much to him who stays, to him who goes. The night was of unusual splendour. Watt was always lucky with his weather but he was no sooner in the public road than he burst into tears. He stood there with bowed head and a bag in each hand, and his tears fell a slow, minute rain to the ground. He would not have believed such a thing possible if he had not been there himself. He met no human being on his way, a strayed ass or goat, lying in the ditch in the shadow, raised its head as he passed. Watt did not see the ass or goat, but the ass or goat saw Watt.
when Watt reached the railway station, it was shut. Watt climbed the stone steps and stood before the wicket, looking through its bars. Watt climbed the wicket and found himself on the platform with his bags. The chimneys of Mr. Knott's house were not visible, in spite of the excellent visibility. In the waiting room, the darkness gradually deepened. When the waiting room had been quite dark for some time, then in the waiting room, the darkness slowly lightened. Watt halted before the ticket window, put down his bags and knocked on the wooden shutter. When Watt saw a face on the other side of the window, he said, Give me a ticket, if you please. A ticket to where? said the station master. To the end of the line, said Watt. Which end? said the station master. Watt did not reply. The round end or the square end? Watt reflected a little longer. Then he said, The further end. That was What by Samuel Beckett, adapted and performed by Barry McGovern, directed by Tom Creed. Music was by Barry McGovern after Samuel Beckett and performed by Thuntha Vocal Ensemble. Mark Dwyer was on sound. The drama on one Beckett season is made possible by kind permission of the estate of Samuel Beckett. The radio version was based on the stage adaptation of What, which premiered in 2010 at the Gate Theatre. The producer was Kevin Reynolds. To listen back to this and hundreds of plays in the Drama Archive, have a look at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Next week's Drama on One is Beckett's All That Fall, starring Peg Monaghan and Aidan Grinnell, directed by Barry McGovern. rte.ie forward slash drama on one.